We'll be reading this morning from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Dear risen church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Yeah, y'all can give a round of applause for that. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Welcome to Risen Church. Devin, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure some of y'all were like, man, I'm glad they didn't call me up for that one. That took some practice. Well, well done. Well, church, uh, grateful that you are here with us at Risen. If this is your first time, as Joanna said earlier, we'd love to meet you. We're doing a little uh, new to Risen uh, welcome in the, uh, after service. We'd love to get the chance to meet you, to shake your hand, to say hello. We are journeying through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3 um, in a very important section of Scripture this morning. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to grab them, open up with me to Luke 3. We're going to be in 21 through 38, as we just heard read. This is an event uh, that we are looking at here in Luke's gospel that the Lord doesn't want us to miss. Uh, This event is uh, recorded in all four gospels. It is the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God does not want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to just breeze past this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all speak of this event. This is the most celebrated baptism of all time. Um, 
This is the most uh, well-known baptism of all time because, church, as we walk through this, I want you to know it's it, baptism, it, it, this, it does no good for a sinner to be identified with Christ in baptism if you don't have a Christ, a Savior, who is identified with us as sinners. In other words, the most celebrated baptism in our Bible is not the conversion and the baptism of the Apostle Paul. It's the baptism of the Lord Jesus. No gospel will let us miss it. No gospel will let us evade it. Um, It's so important. It is Christ identifying with us sinful humanity and being obedient, perfectly obedient to every righteous requirement that was required of him. He fulfills it perfectly. And we see that here as Jesus in this moment, the spotlight shifts off of John the Baptist and begins to shine brightly on the Lord Jesus. And he, in this moment forward, launches into and begins his public ministry with this moment. He lived uh, previously, as we've walked through this, for 30 plus years in relative obscurity. No one knew a lot of what was going on with him. And this marks, this moment marks uh, the launching, the inauguration of his public ministry uh, that we are going to now be walking through and seeing uh, many wonderful things. Um, God does not want us to miss this. Now, there's a lot of things in our Bible that oftentimes we read and we come across and they just, they don't seem relevant to us or they don't seem like maybe we should just move past them. We should, uh, we should go quickly through this. So here we have Jesus. He's baptized by John the Baptist, who we've been learning about. We have this visual perception of God. We have the Holy Spirit, the audible perception of God. So what's so important here? What's going on here? There's some questions I think that we need to answer, that we need to uh, realize here in this text. Well, uh, as a parent, if you're a parent in here, there, there's some things that we ask our children to do that they seem as, they, they think is menial, they think are meaningless, they don't want to do it. It's those moments after supper where there's, if in my family, we've got four kids, so there's always a ton of dishes. Our dishwasher is currently broken, so we haven't gotten a new one, so it's not as easy as throwing them all in the dishwasher. So it's kind of a long process of getting all the dishes done, doing all these things, so the kids now are in their rhythm of... Uh, having to wash all their dishes and clean up for them after themselves. But oftentimes they forget. They just want to like throw it in the sink and leave. And someone's got to come up behind them and do all this. If they just throw their dirty dishes in the sink, they don't get done by themselves, right? And so it's good, it's healthy for our children and for us to, to learn these patterns and to learn these things that don't seem relevant or they seem like, what's the big deal? To learn how to do these things because... Uh, they instill things in us at a young age. If, if at a young age our kids can't learn to serve and to receive orders and to live those out and do them, it'll be, it'll be not good for them in the future as they grow up into be adults, right? So we want to instill these things into them so that they can draw from them and they can learn from them and they can, uh, they can see and know how to operate in the world. And that's true of a lot of things. And there's a lot of places in our Bible that feel like that. We're like, oh, let's just put it over here and not have to deal with it. What's really going on there? It seems irrelevant to me. But we've got to get a lot of things straight here in this passage in the baptism of the Lord Jesus or it will cause problems for us later in in our Christian faith, if we don't have some of these theological things that are happening here sorted away. They're important. They're meaningful. We've got to straighten them out. 
We've got to understand them. And so I believe God wants us to see this, uh, the baptism of our Lord. He shows it in every one of the four Gospels. And there's things that we want to learn and we want to see about Christ that God longs to show us. First, the genealogy. <clears throat> um, the genealogy is, it's, it's, in a, it's in a bit of a strange place. Normally the genealogies are not found right here. They're not found sort of uh, three chapters into a book. Normally a genealogy is placed right up front. So in Matthew's gospel, it's the very first thing uh, that Matthew does to sort of set up who Jesus is, where he's come from. So Luke's gospel does it a little bit differently. We've already gone through all these wonderful narratives. We've seen all these miraculous things happen. We've seen angels. We've seen Gabriel visit. We've seen Mary. We've seen Zechariah, Elizabeth. We have John the Baptist's birth, Jesus' birth, the angels in the field the shepherds. We've got John the Baptist's first sermon. He's calling out the brood of vipers. Here we have Jesus in line waiting to get baptized. He's baptized. The Spirit of God descends on him in bodily form and then a really long genealogy. Why does he put it right here? What's Luke trying to do here in putting it right here? Well, this I believe, is done on purpose. He doesn't just say, well, how do I fit this in? How do I squeeze this in? But the, the genealogy is, immediately follows the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ because, as I said in the introduction, Jesus here in this moment is identifying with the sinners he's come to save. He's identifying with the sinners that he's come to save. And so Luke, after Jesus is baptized in obedience uh, to, to fulfill all that is commanded of him, as Matthew's gospel puts it, he lays out, this is where he's come from. This is who he is. Because God doesn't want us to, to miss the, the fact that Jesus is fully man. He has a lineage. He is he was born. He lived this life. These are his great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. He is a man that was born. He was in a place. He was real. He was tangible. He was human, fully man, yet fully God. And, and God wants us to see clearly here that he is not some, it's not like some superhero story. He's not just an aberration. He's not just a spirit. He doesn't just come in and out of time. He was born in a place. He has a lineage, and he is identified with sinners that he has come to save. Now, I want to show us seven things about the baptism of Jesus that I think are doctrinally important to us as we travel through the rest of Luke's gospel. <laughs> Number one. The baptism of Jesus is Jesus lines up and identifies himself with the message of John the Baptist. So we just spent the last two weeks preaching through and unpacking the message of John the Baptist. All that John said, all that John came to do, all the things that he was proclaiming and talking about as he's in the wilderness, Jesus identifies himself with this message. This message of repentance and man's need for the forgiveness of sins. That, that man is in great need of repentance and in forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist said of himself, and it was said of him in the prophecies, that he was the forerunner of the king. That he was going to come before the Messiah that would come behind him. And he was going to prepare the way. John the Baptist said of man, said of humankind, that there was nothing that man could do to commend himself to God to be forgiven. 
You can't pick yourselves up by your bootstraps. You can't earn it. In fact, your lineage doesn't even commend you to God. We must repent and we must be forgiven that all men must repent and come to God for forgiveness, even Israel. So his original audience hearing him, this was shocking. This was jarring for them. It rattled their religious sensibilities. It rattled what they thought they might deserve or what they thought was owed to them. And John, remember from the last couple weeks, was like, listen, even if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter. God, can, he's standing in the Jordan River, and there's rocks underfoot. He says God can raise up these rocks for himself as children of God. That's how powerful God is. So unless you come to him with repentance for the forgiveness of sins, you cannot be saved. Um. He's saying this to the most religious people on earth. He's like, God could care less about your pedigree if you have a heart of stone and you don't come to him in repentance and the need for forgiveness. And Jesus, after everyone had been baptized, if you notice, he seems like in the story, he's the last in line and he comes and he's baptized and by being baptized after the proclamation of this message that John the Baptist was proclaiming, Jesus is saying, Yes, that is absolutely right. That is right. What John said, I identify with that, and I'm commending that as correct. In the baptism of Christ, Jesus is commending all that John just said previously in the last few weeks that we've walked through as correct. I'm identifying with this message, and I'm being baptized in saying this is correct the right way to think about this. Um, John the Baptist said of salvation, it was not something you earned, it was a gift of God's grace. And Jesus, in being baptized by John, identifies himself with this, and he says, yes, that's right, that's true. In the same way, the same thing is true about what John the Baptist said about Christ, all the things that he says about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. He's from above. John the Baptist, considered one of the greatest men of all, the most illumined of all mankind at the time, the last and final prophet of the Old Testament that broke the 400 years of silence of God to his people. John the Baptist now speaking a prophecy of God and the people of Israel hanging on every one of his words. John looks at Jesus and says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. This is the greatest one. This is the one we've all been waiting for. This is the one who can forgive us of our sins. And Jesus, being baptized by John, is commending that message. And he's saying, that is exactly right. That is exactly right. Most of us here... uh, if you've ever, like, I don't know, you've got up and you've given a speech or you've, like, uh, been introduced by anyone or you've got uh, a friend that's introducing you to someone else and they start bragging on you and they're like, oh, my goodness, you've got to meet Devin. I mean, the way that he can pronounce these names is absolutely stunning and incredible. I mean, I couldn't even do that. That's why I didn't do it. I had to find someone else that could masterfully articulate these difficult words. It's like he must have studied for hours and you guys can't even believe how incredible and amazing and the time that he 
put into, you know, he's, he's starting to feel awkward. He's starting to be like a little bit, okay, enough already. He did it like when we all clapped for him, he immediately left. He didn't want to receive that. We're all bashful when people start like showering praise and applause on us. We feel a little bit like we're, we're kind of like, okay, enough already. It's like we all like a little bit of it, but it's like, geez, enough. We, we, it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? Unless you're a total narcissist, then you just love it. So that's a, that's a sermon for another day. Um, but most of us, we kind of deflect it. We downplay it. No, it's not a big deal. No, that's, right? We, we kind of do that whole thing. But Jesus hears all of this. Jesus hears all of these accolades. He hears all of this amazing talk about who he is, about this one that's going to come, about this lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world, about one who John says in Matthew's gospel, you should be the one baptizing me. I shouldn't baptize you. I'm not even worthy to do the lowest of all menial servant tasks of untying your sandal. That's how great you are, and that's how lowly I am. Though, yes, I am the last prophet of God, breaking 400 years of silence. He's like, I am Nothing in comparison to this one. And Jesus doesn't downplay it. Jesus doesn't be like, well, come on, let's pump the brakes here, buddy. This is, this is, you are exactly right. And he walks forward in baptism, confirming all that was just said of him, confirming and commending all that was just articulated about him. He doesn't deflect it. He doesn't try to downplay it. He takes the praise and says, that is exactly right. So number one, he identifies himself with John the Baptist and his message on man's salvation and how and who Christ is himself. Secondly, the baptism, of, the baptism <coughs> identifies Christ with man. Um, he's one of us. He's fully God, yes, but he's fully man. Uh, Verse 21. It came about when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized. In other words, he's like us. He identifies with us. Uh, Why did he do it? Well, because we have to do it. The righteous Jew at the time, those hearing this message of repentance that John came and was proclaiming and preaching as the final prophet of the Old Testament before Jesus comes on the scene and inaugurates his ministry, (coughs) said this is what you must do, the baptism of repentance. The righteous Jew needed to walk through this, needed to do this. And so they were all down at the Jordan. John was calling them out, yes, calling them a brood of vipers. But if they were going to walk in obedience and in faith, they would be baptized under this message of repentance. And so yielding to the message of God through John the Baptist in this proclamation, Christ did everything that the righteous was required to do. He submitted himself to it. He walked through it. Though on some occasion, he, he did this all over his, his public ministry. We're going to see it play out as we go through this gospel. On some occasions, yes, uh, he, he, he didn't go to the Passover or he wasn't, uh, he used those as teaching moments, but yet he was most often always at the Passover. But yet he was the Passover lamb of God. Why did he need to attend the Passover when he was the final and ultimate fulfillment of the Passover as the Lamb of God? He did it because the righteous 
was required to do so. And he submitted himself to it, the righteous requirement. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Um, Why did he do that? He was the very seed of Israel that they were longing for and hoping for. He was the fulfillment of that uh, that very symbol. Why? Because that's what the righteous was required to do. He walked through it in obedience. And he was down at the Jordan River hearing the proclamation of John's message of repentance and forgiveness as the final Old Testament prophet. And he was down at that river and submitted himself to a baptism of water because that's what the righteous was required to do. And he walked through it. Um, All the people were being baptized and Jesus walked through it perfectly with obedience. Our next point, number three, uh, builds upon that point is that Jesus, as he has identified with man, embodies the complete righteous man. Um, he identifies the complete, embodies the complete righteous man. Um, there's something interesting uh, that Matthew's gospel in this very same uh, account records. I'm going to read it. Uh, Matthew 3, 13 through 16 records this moment this way. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And so Matthew 3, 14 records the same moment. And there were two groups that he was talking to, or two individuals rather, that John the Baptist said that he wasn't going to baptize. The first one was the self-righteous Pharisee that he calls broods of vipers. He said, listen, if you've come here just to check a box, you need to actually repent before you're going to be baptized. So I'm not going to baptize you unless you have a posture of repentance. And then the other person he says he's not going to baptize is Christ himself because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, because he perfectly has done all that was required of him. And John's like, why... You should be baptizing me, not the other way around. And Jesus says to him in this exchange, he said, it is permitted. Um, Or it could be translated in other places, uh, literally, we can suffer this. I'll suffer through this humiliating act of walking through in obedience to be baptized by human hands and these baptism waters because this is what is required of righteousness. Because this is the way. It's fitting for us to fulfill all the righteous requirements. So Jesus is fulfilling all that was required to be the perfect, righteous man. And he does so beautifully right here. And his act of baptism right here is the final act of his private life. Like I said earlier, remember there's, there's 30 years of almost obscurity. The carpenter's son, um, he comes on the scene and this is 
the final act of his private life. As a little boy, he was circumcised at eight days, though he didn't need to be. It was the sign to fulfill, this is the righteous requirement. He was the Messiah. He did it because the Lord demanded it. He went up to Passover as a boy, and Kevin was preaching. Why? Because this is what the righteous did. Um, and then it states in that passage, that his, after his parents finally find him, and he's celebrating the Passover, he's in the temple, he says, uh, in the early days, after everything had been fulfilled according to the law, his parents took him home. He's fulfilling all of the requirements required of him to be the perfect righteous man. Jesus did everything the righteous man had to do. He humbled himself and went through every edict, even though he was the lawgiver. He kept every law perfectly. He leapt through every hurdle, even though he was the omnipotent God. And it was because he knew what he was doing. He knew he had to walk through all of these things so that he then, as, they, as the, the perfect, righteous, fully God and fully man walked through all of it, he then could bestow upon us all the righteous requirements that were required of us that we failed so miserably to uphold. He did them all for us. Um, see, the righteousness granted to us, church, I think oftentimes we miss this, the righteousness that we sing about, that, we, that makes our hearts swell with gratitude was not just given to us just on a whim. It wasn't just, oh, okay, here, like, here you go. It's not, it wasn't a magic wand. The mercy of God and the righteousness granted to us by Jesus, it was earned by Christ. It is free to us, but it was earned by Christ. He jumped through every hoop, so to speak. He hammered out all the requirements necessary and did them perfectly and did not fail to, to, to fulfill the very last one. He did it all. He was perfectly obedient to fulfill all the Father had set before him. And that's how he can then grant to us now who believe by faith this righteousness, because he did it all for us. And that's why, incidentally, uh, that through his public life, the last act of his public life, three years in, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll get to that in many, many months. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell that story as well. After three years of his public life, he's in the Garden before this final humiliating act of laying himself and placing himself on the cross, immersing himself, taking the punishment of the sin that we deserved, but he lowered himself into sin and judgment that sinners that would believe on him might have his righteousness and mercy granted and imputed to us. And he prays in that garden, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will be done, but thine be done. And he obeyed perfectly every righteous requirement he obeyed the book of hebrews comments on this hebrews 5 it's not gonna be on the screen i added it this morning um seven through nine says in the days of his flesh speaking of christ jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence 
although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus' righteousness as we walk through the gospel of Luke, was forged. Yes, he always was the Holy One, but as he walks through all of this, it's he walks through every requirement and he steps into this. He steps into the silhouette that the law of God required that would be demonstrated for the perfect righteous man. Jesus is that one for us. And God now offers us His righteousness granted to us by faith in the one who lived it perfectly should we believe on him. Um, It's beautiful, a wonderful, wonderful message. So what does Christ do? He identifies with John's message. Two, he identifies himself as one of us. Three, his baptism caps a perfectly obedient private life. And number four, his baptism commences his public ministry. It's a bridge. Uh, Every prophet, king, and judge in the Old Testament, if you go back and, or if you're a student of your Old Testament, would begin their public ministry, would begin their public service, would begin uh, what they had before them from the Lord by the reception of the Holy Spirit of God to empower their work and to designate them as God's official servant. And when and God in the Old Testament could remove his Holy Spirit, if, if these prophets, if these kings, if these um, judges were not living up to what they should have done, he could remove the Holy Spirit, thus ending uh, their, their ability to serve and to speak on behalf of the Lord. And so we see this all over the place. In David, in Psalm 51, David records him grieving over his sin with Bathsheba, and he's begging God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The Bible speaks of King Saul and his sin, that the Spirit of God departed from him, and then his kingship ended. Samson with Delilah, he didn't even know that the Spirit of God had left him. The scripture tells us. Gideon begins his ministry as a judge and the spirit of God says clothed him. And so often in the Bible, it's the presence of the spirit of God that allows one to rule and to judge and to prophesy and to speak on behalf of God. The spirit of God demonstrated that uh, this ministry was going to begin for Jesus as the true Davidic king as the final word from God, as the final prophet, the final king, the final priest, the final judge, and he was divinely designated. As we see in the baptism, the Spirit of God descend on him in bodily form in this passage. Um, God looks at him and says, this is my son in who I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit says yes and comes down on him and commences and begins his public ministry that certifies his perfection of his private life and catapults him into his public ministry. Fifth point brings us to the dove. Um, And the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form as a dove. 
Now, uh, in the Bible, we are, we're used to, uh, there's a couple ways, oftentimes the scriptures uses different analogies. There's anthropomorphic analogies where um, God takes on sort of human attributes like the heart of God or um, the nostrils of God or, you know, there's different things where God takes to himself human, the eyes of God, the arms of God stretched out. That's an anthropomorphic sort of understanding. It helps us understand who God is by giving God language using human terminology. Well, here we have something different. This is also common language in the Bible. It's uh, zoomorphic. And so it's God taking on sort of animal traits. And these are common in the Psalms where it's uh, he will be your shelter as a wing. He will, he will raise you up on eagle's wings. So you get God depicted and it helps us understand who he is and what he's like through these different comparison analogies through animals because it's things that we see in the world that help us understand and draw from uh, what God is like based on these different attributes. Um. Wings of eagles, it's zoomorph. Or his, his, he's caught us up on his feathers different times in the Bible speak of. Well, this is the only time in the Bible that you see the Holy Spirit taking on an animal appearance or to help us not, it doesn't take on the appearance, but it's helping us understand how it's descending down. Um, so the question is, why would God take the form of a dove coming down to rest upon his son? Um, well, there's another place in the Bible that we see a dove in the story of a dove. There's a lot of different, I don't have enough time to go through all of these, but one that I found very compelling that I think helps us understand what's going on here and even ties in beautifully with the baptism moment that we see here is there's another Old Testament story. Remember these, these Jews that were around here would have understood and known their Bible. They would have understood all that was taking place. Uh, one story that we see a dove come up in the Old Testament is um, at the end of the judgment of God. God wiping out creation and beginning again. The enti- all of humanity is flooded. The judgment waters covered the earth. And God is essentially restarting. It's a story of Noah and the ark. Right, we're all familiar with this. Not sure why it's a great children's story because it's horrific, just crazy, like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this is happening. But God essentially is restarting and recreating humanity. He's beginning again. It starts with a new creation. So after 40 days, Noah has the ark filled. There's all of these animals. His family is there. The judgment waters have filled the earth. Death has occurred. He's wiped out all the unrighteous. There's this righteous one, Noah, and his family that he is going to save and restart a new humanity with. And Noah on the ark, in order to know when it's safe and when it's time to get out of the boat, sends out a dove. And a dove flies out. The dove flies around, but the dove comes back to Noah because there's nowhere for it to land, meaning there's no life. The waters are still covered, everything. The judgment waters are still covering over all of the life. The dove gets sent out again. Um, And then the dove gets sent out again. And this time, the dove finds life. And it's an olive twig. And the dove brings back the olive twig to Noah, symbolizing there is life. And we can get off of this boat. We can evade the judgment waters of death. 
and we can find life in a new creation that God has restored for us and he will go before us and he will go with us and we can walk off of this saved from this vessel that he told us and the way that we would find salvation in life through this that God had provided for us and the dove lands on an olive branch and finds life and a new humanity is started. Though it's temporal, we know because the rest of the story goes on. That's, that lesson needed to be learned again. It's a wonderful illustration of light and life and salvation that Noah has. Um, and many feel that this story, the, the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, just like it was with Noah, that the dove went out and it found life, and it found light, and they were beginning to start again, was the start of a new creation, that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what happened there long ago with Noah and the ark. That Jesus in this moment walks out, and here begins a brand new creation, where we would find life and hope and salvation from the judgment waters of death. And he would emerge from them and be victorious over all of it. And the dove lands down on him out of these waters and says, this is our safe harbor. This is the one whom we have all been waiting for. This is the one who we know can provide safe passage and salvation and forgiveness that we're so longing for. And the dove descends on him. Many commentators and many scholars believe this moment is symbolic of the fulfillment of that which came before him. It's a beautiful picture of salvation and that which Jesus came to do. Salvation from the judgment waters of sin and death coming out of them and finding life and hope in our Savior and Lord Jesus. This is the way he begins his ministry. This is our whole new reality that we're hoping for and he is right there. God beginning a new way, a new world, a new hope for humanity through this one, Jesus, our Lord. Um, it's interesting that Noah's name in Hebrew means rest. Genesis 5 says uh, he was named Noah because of a prophecy of Enoch. Uh, and his name means that God's people would have rest from the curse, which God would curse the world. Um, and that happened in Noah. He came to pass in his name, though it would be temporal. We see it ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus would later say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you shall find rest for your souls. Um, I think Noah is a, a picture of Christ. And Christ is the one whom we find safe refuge and salvation for our souls, and rest for our longing souls. And it's God who sends down this dove that represents light and life and the Holy Spirit descending on him to begin his public ministry, beginning a new creation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sixth, we clearly see the Trinity in this passage. We see the Father speaking, we see the Son obeying. We see the Spirit descending. You can see Jesus going down into the waters. You can see the dove descending down upon him. You can hear the audible voice of God. So right here 
in this passage, in the baptism of Jesus, we clearly see a Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are all present here in this passage. Though the word Trinity doesn't show up in our Bible, these passages are where we understand the concept of a Trinitarian God. And this is one of the most clear pictures, clear um, seeing the Trinity at the same time in our Bible right here in the baptism of our Lord. Um, Seventh, last thing, is this is the Father's identification of how a man will go to heaven. Of how humanity might be saved. Um, What does God say here? He says, there is one person, God says at his baptism, this is my son and in him. Second person, singular pronoun. Meaning him and him alone. Him and him alone. I am pleased. And God speaks. The Holy Spirit rests. The Son goes down and he says, this is the one. This is the one whom you will find salvation. This is the one in whom you will find forgiveness of your, of your sins. John points to him and says, this is the one. I hope you see this event. It's like a uh, neon sign flashing at the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist says, there he is. The Father says, there he is. The Son says, here am I. The Spirit says, this is him. Neon lights. You cannot miss it. There is no other name given among men by which they must be saved. This is him. He's here. It's an embodiment and fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Behold my my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He is the one. He is the perfect servant of God. Jesus, in the following pages, in the following months, as we look at this, will give everything. He will give his tongue, his ear, his back, his cheek, his everything He will be spit on, he will be beaten, he will be mocked, he will be punched, he will be nailed to a cross in his body as a sacrifice. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the one who goes into the waters of death for you and I, and he emerges victorious in life for those who would take him by faith and treasure him as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. And he did everything perfectly. And those who believe by faith, he grants to us now his very righteousness and promises us eternity with him forever and ever and ever in glory. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is what the baptism of our Lord shows us. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for your holy, inspired word. We thank you that every word is good. We thank you that all the names listed in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus point us to the realities of who he is. We thank you that in his baptism, Lord, he perfectly fulfilled all the righteous requirements that we could not so that he could grant to us by faith righteousness. Lord, free to us, not free for him. 
And so, Lord, this morning I pray, um, Lord, that we would respond in worship, that you are the good king that we've been waiting for, that you did all things necessary for us to have the light and life of hope and salvation. And so, God, I pray that this room and this church and this body of believers would send up a holy roar of praise for all that you've done. You are so good. Um, So, Lord, I pray that we would take you by faith and our lives would be lives lived in worship of all of who you are. Gratitude and praise and that we would then obey you out of a joy because you've done it all for us. Through Christ, it's in his name we pray. Amen. Church, will you stand as we praise him this morning?